0: Welcome to another installment of Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King, an exposition of the Book of Acts, where we're taking a look, kind of an overview look at the Book of Acts, as we go through and we challenge ourselves with what we find there. The the birth of the early church, the The travels and the ministries of Peter and Paul and many others who surround him in proclaiming the gospel truth. And so we're seeing actually the acts of the Holy Spirit of God uh, launching the church and building the church. As Jesus said, he would build his church. And indeed, that's precisely what we're seeing in the book of Acts. Today brings us to a very challenging uh, passage in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 we find Paul and his ministry in Ephesus and we're going to be taking a look at verses 11 all the way through chapter 20 verse 1. So Acts 19 11 through 20 verse 1 and we're going to talk about gospel impact and I chose that title as kind of a play on the idea that the Uh, Temple of Artemis or Diana as she she is known in the city of Ephesus apparently had some kind of an artifact that fell from the sky and this of course would be a meteorite of some kind that had impacted the area and uh, we don't know if that inspired what was there or just added to what was already there. Uh, Chances are this was already a place of worship when the meteorite came and they thought oh this is a sign this is Artemis approving of Of our temple and our worship and everything and so it became an integral part but of course we don't have that today but nevertheless it is interesting that's mentioned here in Acts chapter 19. So this uh, just as this meteorite impacted this area what we're going to see is that the gospel impacts this area as the gospel truth comes and the message is proclaimed it transforms lives both individually and even corporately. So we'll see a personal impact of these things, but we're also going to see in this passage the great cultural impact of the gospel coming to this area. So I want to read from Acts chapter 19, verse 11, to chapter 20, verse 1. It's a long passage, but we need to cover the whole thing in one piece because uh, it is all tied together with this idea of this transformation of the impact of the gospel on this place. So stay with me. And uh, stay focused, and I'm going to put the scripture up here for you to take a look at. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded." And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to fifty thousand pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him in. And even among uh, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. And When they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know? that the city of the Ephesians is a temple-keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. So let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in a regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and parted for Macedonia. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you for this mighty ministry in Ephesus. And I pray, Lord, that we may be challenged by what took place here. And that we might examine ourselves. That we might also be transformed. That we might also make great and drastic measures to conform our lives to the image of your Son. Lord, I pray this day that you'll be with us to grant us faith. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for your people. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Well, there you have it, a rather exciting scene that we see there, and we uh, begin by by looking at the bookends here in this uh, thing of the riot in this uh, pericope of the riot here if if we look at chapter nineteen verse twenty one we see the Paul in the spirit. Resolved to go through Macedonia and Achaia back to Jerusalem. And then the riots provide him the reason to go. And the occasion to go in chapter 20 verse 1. So it's just very interesting that this begins with Paul feels like, Ah, you know, I think it's about time to head out from Ephesus. Now he's been there over two years. And, and it's time to head out, and it's time to revisit a few places, and then on my way to Jerusalem. And sure enough, this riot ensues, and the perfect occasion is given. Well, okay, I guess nothing's holding me here. I, I should be on my way. And so that, uh, aside from that, what I want to point out in this passage is this great impact of the gospel. And I want to first begin with looking at the personal impact of these things. The personal impact of the gospel. Uh, we see in verses 11 and 12 that many miracles were being done, some of these even indirect things that had just been with Paul were taken to people and, and they had enough faith in the gospel that Paul was preaching that they would be healed even with Paul not present. Very profound, wonderful miracles that the Lord was doing to affirm the gospel teaching there. And we see even non-believers were respecting the powers. These things happened to the sons of Sceva. Uh, All people, you know, Jew and Greek, were kind of in fear about what was going on and amazed by what was going on. And look at verse 17. We see the impact of these things. In verse 17, it became known to all residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, these things that were happening, fear fell upon them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or, or bolstered or built up. And so this is a, a wonderful, mighty thing that the Lord is doing here. The verses I really want to focus on uh, for this personal transformation are verses 18 through 20. Many of those who were now believers. So these are the believers coming. This is not some kind of a spontaneous social thing that's happening. This is a movement of the Spirit among the people of God. And people are being transformed to the point of drastic life change, powerfully motivated and impacted by the gospel. Uh, even part this is even part of what caused the word to increase. And prevail mightily if we looked at uh, verse 20 here. So look, these people went to the point of some of them that had practiced magic arts, which you think in terms of magic arts, in, in our world today, we often think in rationalistic terms, we often think in those terms of, oh, magic is really not a thing, it's just superstition, there's only science, there's nothing else. But we understand from reading the scriptures and from even today's experiences that There's something to these things, that there are evil forces behind these things, and that uh, indeed some of these things do have power, but it is very clearly demonic power. And so these people had practiced magic arts of one kind or another in the past, but after becoming believers, they resolved we're gonna burn these books. And the value of the books was fifty thousand pieces of silver. We're we're talking about many, many, many lifetimes of income. We're talking about millions of dollars that these things were worth as they bring them together and they burn them. Uh, this is a mighty and, and incredible testimony to their faith, that their faith that, you know, we can burn these things up. And we can give them up and we can embrace God and he's going to take care of this. They did not sell them because that would take this bad information and put it in the hands of someone else. And so this is radical and true transformation that has happened to these people. And this is normative for the gospel and not necessarily burning magic books. No. No, the uh, books themselves were not magic, but they spoke of the magical arts and things. But nevertheless, it's not necessarily the specific book burning that we're looking at here, but this transformation. The fact that they had so changed, that the gospel had so changed them, that they were willing to make drastic changes in their lives, and they were able to make these changes. That's the thing. It's not just being convinced to do it. It's being empowered to do it. It is not easy to give some things up. Ask anyone who has recovered from any kind of addiction, or had any kind of a major life change, and any kind of addiction to any kind of sin, even. Uh, We're not just talking about chemical dependency. We're talking about this mental and this cultural dependency upon certain traditions and things that are contrary to the gospel. It takes power to overcome those things, and that power is the Holy Spirit of God. And people who become believers in Jesus Christ are expected and even are commanded to be transformed. And this is what we're seeing. Look how Paul states this in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, verses 14 and 15, he says, The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So it's an expectation in the thinking of Paul and no doubt this is what he preached there in Ephesus is the expectation is you die to yourself and then you live for him who died on your behalf. You live for Jesus Christ from the moment of belief and onward. He commands us in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 and look at the command here that, that he says here. He says, do not be conformed to this world. What he's really saying there is you can read this as stop being conformed to this world because the world is constantly trying to conform you. And this is something we need to understand is we're not brought from neutrality into the gospel. We're brought from the opposite of the gospel into the gospel. We're brought in from the opposition team And the Bible makes it clear that there are no neutral parties in the human race, that all are either serving Jesus Christ or they are serving the intent and the systems of the evil one. And so here we have Paul's command here, do not be conformed or stop being conformed to this world, but be, and this is a command, transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transformation is a command. Now, he is helpful to tell us how we do this, the attitude that leads toward this, and it's here in verse 1 of Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, so that's the equipping, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is how we do it, by offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, okay? Many people say that they would die for the gospel but I say that the greatest challenge is to live for it. The greatest challenge is to live for it. For to die for it can be uh, something that's merely momentary but it's the day-to-day grind of living against the world, of living the gospel out, of being faithful to God that is truly difficult. But it is empowered, as it says here, by the mercies of God. God empowers this change. Look how Paul says it in Galatians 2.20, his attitude toward life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And so he lives by faith that he is crucified with Christ. His old way is dead. He's dead to all the the things that he used to be. He says in all the achievements and everything he had prior to becoming uh, a believer in Christ, becoming a servant of Christ, he says, I count them as rubbish, as dung. I count those things. And so this is this is transformation. This is and the word used there in Romans is metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis, and the idea of metamorphosis is a fundamental and complete change. Now, what's interesting is is what caught my eye was the book burning itself, because that made me think of uh, like a burnt offering to God, because, you know, we no longer have, as in the uh, new covenant, uh, a sacrificial offering system. Now, the Israelites were commanded and and indeed did give many, many different kinds of offerings to God, most of them burnt offerings. And so it occurred to me, this is like a burnt offering these people are doing, that they're taking these books of something of tremendous value and say, Lord, we're burning this for you. And indeed they were, and they did burn those for the Lord. And no doubt that just as the sacrifices of the Israelites done in faith, he counted as a pleasing aroma to himself, surely this action was a pleasing aroma to god these things could have been sold but a true believer is going to destroy such things because they may lead others to uh, may lead others astray now the question comes then should we be burning books as christians should we be banning books as christians well i want to point something out ephesus had a library Not just any library, but a tremendous library. A library that would easily be in the top five of the ancient world of the time. Now, last sermon, or maybe the one before that, we mentioned the one at Alexandria, where Apollos was from. And that was the greatest library that they had at the time. Ephesus, definitely in the top five definitely an amazing library, an incredible collection of information from throughout the world and and various languages and various forms. And so no doubt that would be a valuable place and important place for us to keep all those things and all those records. I want you to notice the believers did not go into the library. These were the books they personally owned. This was not an act of civil disobedience, of theft, or of of vandalism. No, these were their own personal property, and they destroyed them. And so should we burn books? Well, sure, yeah, if they're personal books, and you feel like that needs to be taken out of the midst. When I was in uh, Bible college, when I went there, their library uh, received many donations of books uh, through the years. And they could only take so much and put them on the shelf. And when they would receive books that they already had on the shelf, they would make them available to the students. Now, get this. Now, this was not that long ago, okay? Early 2000s, and these books would be presented to the student body for $0.25 a piece for hardcover, $0.10 a piece for the softcover, for the paperback versions. And so we were constantly as as new and 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 budding preachers as people who would want to build their library. We were constantly perusing this this uh, these books to see what we could buy, and we would spend a few dollars and get ourselves a pile of books to take home and to learn and to study and to have as references. and many of those behind me now are books that were purchased in this way. But when we would see on the table books that were clearly heretical, books that were clearly written by people with with distorted or wrong views of the gospel, books that would disseminate wrong information, sometimes we would purchase those books and we would throw them in the trash. Now, we would purchase them so they became our property and then at that point we would throw them in the trash. Because why? Because they spread false information. Okay, Now, I'm not for burning all of books. I believe all of it should be taken by believers, consumed, and refuted. I believe that Christians ought to be able to take any book into their life, read it, and refute it, and show how the gospel is better than the content of that book. And in faith, when we do so, we will find every time that the gospel is superior to those things. So Paul's attitude is this, I'm crucified with Christ, and yet I live, and the life that I have is not mine, but it is Christ. This is the very imagery that he interpreted as baptism. He said, you know, as he presents the gospel in the book of Romans, the natural question would come, okay, if all this is by faith and the free gift of God is eternal life and everything else, Why not just go ahead and sin? In fact, why not sin all the more so that God can show more grace and we can glorify him for it? Well, he answers that issue. He says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And here's where he speaks of baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul even even saw in baptism this picture of being united with Christ in death. Our old life being left in the water, so to speak. And then when we rise up out of that water, we walk in a newness of life and by the way, it's a very good argument for baptism by immersion uh, because the, the the whole picture is kind of lost on simply sprinkling somebody. But I digress. Paul saw as fundamental to the Christian life a transformation. He saw it as mandatory because he commanded it. The gospel is designed to change our life outwardly as it changes us inwardly. Now remember ultimately the most importantly the Gospels about eternal life. It's about knowing God and it's about being re- reconciled to God so that we may spend eternity with him. But that kind of transformation on the inside that kind of spiritual transformation always manifests itself on the outside with this outward transformation. Inwardly, as we're moved from death to life, outwardly we will put away the things of death and we will be taking up the things of life. And it should make our sinful lives past tense. Look how he describes it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? No, he's writing this letter to Corinth because there was much unrighteous activity happening. And he writes this, and he says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But look right here where it says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So these things were supposed to be past tense for the believers. And he's saying that you can't inherit the kingdom of God being being one of these kind of people, being characterized in this way. But you were those things, but you've been washed. And so he's challenging them with their salvation. So there's a tremendous personal impact that we're seeing here and a transformation that is happening. But there's also a great cultural impact in these verses. Uh, We meet a man named Demetrius in verse 24. He gathers together craftsmen and workmen. He calls out Paul by name saying this Paul is preaching against what we do, and there's a great danger here, and the danger is, according to him, that many people might be turned away, saying that gods made with hands are not gods, and that this would threaten the reputation of their trade, and of the temple itself, and ultimately, though I want to point out, I don't think this was his major point, in verse 27, Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. I want you to notice two things. The first thing he mentions is their livelihood. The last thing he mentions is Artemis' reputation. And so I don't think this was his primary concern. I think he uses this concern to get everyone motivated because that's exactly what happens. Look, when they heard this, they were enraged. And so he left his most emotionally impactful argument for last, but I think his most closest to his heart argument was the first thing he brought up, that this is a threat to our livelihood, our trade, and oh yeah, uh, it might say bad things about Artemis. It might ruin Artemis's reputation, and then everyone loses their mind. And so he manipulates them this way. He gets them all riled up. But I want to point out that Demetrius and the opposition actually have some good points. They do have evidence, and they do have some truth on their side in in terms of the facts. Paul did preach against idolatry. And Ephesus was, in fact, a destination of the whole world to come and worship Artemis. That the travelers and things coming there, especially during their week-long spring festival were integral to the foundation of the economy of the town. That's what kept Ephesus going in part, okay? And so he's right on those things. And the ESV study Bible lists it this way. It says that, you know, that tied to the worship of Artemis was the civic, economic, and religious interests of the city. So this, this is a legitimate point that they have. This is a very serious matter that should Artemis become, I don't know, something that is past tense. It would be bad for the city. So I want to point out something here. And I want to, I want to bring up the scriptures here so that you can see them. I want to point out that their argument is self Refuting. False religions tend to refute themselves if you simply let them talk long enough. Look at verses 27 and 28 here. He says there's danger of not only the trade coming into disrepute, but also the temple. And that Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Now I have a question about this, and here's my question, and it's simply this. If Artemis is a true god, truly magnificent and worthy of worship the world over, how is she threatened by a single Jewish preacher? Notice how these worshippers begin to exhibit their own broken worldview by this mindless chanting that they do in verse 28. When they hear this, they were enraged. So they're being emotionally manipulated, emotionally manipulated. Uh, driven here. They become enraged. They were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then in verse 34, they do this for two hours. They were doing this, chanting like this. Okay, This is mindless chanting. This is what Jesus told us not to do. When his disciples asked him to pray, he said, Okay, first of all, don't be like the Gentiles who think that by continually offering up the same prayer and repeating it, they're going to be heard. Now Jesus did teach persistence in prayer, but he taught against specifically what was a Gentile practice of saying the same thing over and over and over again in almost a trance-like state, thinking that somehow that was going to twist the arm of the God to give you what you want. And notice this whole scene from this point forward, from from the point of their getting enraged about this and hearing it and starting all this is marked by confusion. Confusion is mentioned in verse 29. It's mentioned in verse 32 where a great number of people didn't even know why they were there. They went into the theater and this theater held up to 25,000 people. See Ephesus is a place that we know it where it is and we've uncovered it archeologically and we they've reconstructed much of it. It's one of the greatest archaeological sites of the ancient world. And this theater, we know where it is. We know how big it was. And we know that this riot, therefore, has thousands of people. But I want you to notice, just like riots that we have today, most people don't even know why they are there. This is a really fascinating thing. We see this in our world today, as now people have boldly gone among the audiences we have today and the the riots we have today to go in and interview people during these riots. And most of the time, the interviews come back as so many of the people are confused as to why they're there. They don't really understand the issue. They've got the facts confused. And they are just kind of having a good time. And this is marked not only by confusion, but by hatred. Look at verses 33 and 34. Alexander Apparently wants to address the crowd, and when they see that he's a Jew, he doesn't allow him. They don't allow him to speak. This is when they, they cry out for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. This was hatred. This was this was racial. This was a an ethnic uh kind of prejudice that they were exhibiting here, and an ultimately lawlessness. And this is when the town clerk tries to calm things down, and and he kind of acknowledges their their problems and acknowledges their their grievances. And he says, look, we have ways to do this. Uh, They weren't using the proper ways to do it. He's like, we've got courts. We've got a proconsul. You can bring charges against these people. uh, Only let's do this in the right way because we might be charged with a riot. Now he says that, and if you don't know something about the Roman world, you don't understand the seriousness of this, that a city like Ephesus would work hard to get a good status with Rome so that they would have certain freedoms and a certain amount of autonomy, okay? Ephesus had a great deal of autonomy. Places like Judea, uh, where Jerusalem was and everything, didn't. And they didn't because they had a tendency to rebel and to be troubles and to be unstable. But a place like Ephesus, they earned a great position in the Roman Empire and they, they earned certain privileges along with that. If they were found to be unstable, the Romans would basically demote their status. They would reduce their status, and there would be a stronger Roman presence there, and there would be a stronger uh, Roman interference in everything that they were doing. And so he says, look, we're going to get charged with rioting. Everyone in the crowd knew what that meant. That means the Romans are going to come in. They're going to crack down on us. So let's calm this down. Take this up through the legal channels, so this uh, their religion is marked by this lawlessness, mindless chanting, confusion, hatred, lawlessness. These are all the earmarks that we see that these false religions give rise to, and this and then they contradict themselves because truly, if this were a, a goddess of any kind of power of any kind of significance, of any kind of reality whatsoever then why would she not intervene? Why would she not fix these things from them? Why would Artemis not protect them? And here's the thing. Why, why couldn't Artemis protect them from poverty? They obviously saw they had to take these matters into their own hands. Why wouldn't Artemis give them work if, in fact, these Christians drove them out of work? Why would Artemis not oppose the opposition or raise up a prophet for Artemis that can speak against these Christians and show the flaws in their thinking? And show the contradictions that they might have. And put them down. Well, none of these things happen because this is not a true God. This is a superstition. This is a tradition. This is a construct of human thinking. And therefore, it is by itself empty and false. Now, this gives us a tremendous contrast. And I, I want you to take a look at this as uh, as we go through these. It's a great contrast between the gospel And between false religions of every kind. Um, Unfortunately I don't have these on on the same page. But let me read these for you. The gospel is spread by persuasion. False religions are spread by propaganda. The gospel offers truth. False religions offer lies. The gospel is characterized by love. And False religions by anger. The gospel results in glory for God. False religions result in glory for men. The gospel gives us salvation. False religions give us only superstition. The gospel gives us liberation. But false religions give us only bondage. The gospel gives us faith. And the others fear. The gospel gives us transformation, but false religions only have tradition. The gospel is eternal, and the false religions are temporal. I want to leave you with this one for a minute. Think about this. Let me get back to this this list here first. That false religions are temporary. Ephesus is gone. The ruins of it are there, but the city and its systems and its people and its ways and its religion, they're all gone. The temple is gone. The temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world, one of the largest structures of its kind ever built. It's gone. It's been partially rebuilt elsewhere for different purposes, but it is no longer the temple to Artemis. The worldwide worship of Artemis is gone. The silversmiths, Demetrius, and all the others, they're gone. Their lives, their family, their trade. It's all gone. It's all temporary. And I want you to see in this scene in Acts chapter 19, how tightly they clung to it. And they have lost it all. But look at the Ephesian church we still have the testimony of these Ephesian believers. We have a letter to them from Paul. We have a letter to them in the book of Revelation. And we have other letters and other histories and things that document their progress and their existence over the centuries that followed. And the gospel still goes on, marching forward, unchanged from the first century, and gaining converts every day. Now, we may never meet Demetrius and the other silversmiths. In fact, we will only meet them if indeed they repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if we have done the same, then we shall meet them. But we will meet many of those Ephesian believers. We will meet many of those people that burn books on that day. We will meet Paul and the others who served faithfully to establish that church. They live on. They are eternal. As the gospel is eternal, Jesus said the, the word of God will not pass away. Not one bit of it. So here's our challenges from this as we take a look at this account. It's such an exciting account and so tremendously fun to read and some humorous things happening in there, particularly with Sons of Sceva. But we have to ask ourselves this. Have, have I been transformed? Do I have some books to burn, so to speak. Not, not necessarily literally. But are there things in my life, things that represent the old life, things that are bad habits, things that are unproductive hobbies, things that, that take away from the testimony I have of Jesus Christ that I still have to get rid of? Then I ought to get rid of them. I have to, in faith, understand that it's by the mercies of God that I can present myself as a living sacrifice and so be transformed by the renewing of my mind. It is completely by the mercies and power of the Holy Spirit and of God, but it is with my cooperation and in accordance with my will. And so I have to ask myself, have I been transformed? What is God wanting to transform in me next? And then second, and similar to it, do I really believe in God's power to transform? Do I believe that he can transform me the way that he wants? Do I believe that he can transform my family? Yes, the people who maybe oppose the gospel, the people who rub you the wrong way the most, could be your family. Can God really transform them? Well, he took people that were practicing witchcraft and turned them into believers. Believers that were willing to burn those books at great cost. Do you believe that God has the power? I don't care what kind of a sinner you have in your mind when you think about this. God has transformed and saved worse. He has dealt with worse sinners than any that you could conceive of. And indeed, he is continuing to transform lives to this day. He can transform you and your family and your friends. And then he can have that same impact on your community and on your nation and on the world. Do you believe that? See, this account in... In Chapter 19 gives us great hope because here God intervened in a place, in a time and a place, and he intervened in the lives of individuals, and he intervened in such a profound way that it threatened the very way of life of some of the people in that town. What if in your town that all of a sudden the bars had to close? What if in your town, all of a sudden, the the lottery sales were were dropping off to a point that some people were panicking about their income? What if in your town that the houses of ill repute and that the, the places where people go to perform all kinds of inappropriate acts, what if those places were in danger of shutting down? Would you share the gospel with their owners so that they could find a new way to fund their lives? To get along to survive? Do you believe, do you have the faith that God can do those things? I hope so, because he did it in Ephesus. He's still doing it to this day. God indeed does transform people. And then finally, will I take the next step in my transformation? It says your transformation on notes, but will I take the next step in my transformation? Will I grab hold of it? Will I trust in God and take that next step? Well, that indeed is up to us, isn't it? Well, let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer as we think on these things. Father God, we thank you so much for your ministry among the saints that continues to this day. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done and all, Lord, that you have recorded. I pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith this day. To help us to take the next step in transformation with you. Help us to have the faith that you will transform the lives of all who believe. Because that, Lord, will embolden us to share the truth. And Lord, I pray that you will just work in my life, work in the lives of the hearers here, to make us bold witnesses of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us see you work. Let us see your glory. Show us your glory by transforming lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that's been helpful to you. I want to suggest uh, that you contact us, and you can contact us, I'll bring it up here for you, at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. When you uh, contact us there, indeed, we will, uh, I will answer that personally, and we will get back to you. We'll answer all kinds of questions, whatever you may have. We'll even respond to your, your objections, your problems, your criticisms, whatever it is, uh, we can take it and we would uh, love your input, and we would love to interact with you and answer your questions and help you uh, as God transforms you. God bless you.